G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. If you don't ask for much in return, I'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. There, there are some reviews there, but uh, um, but well, I, it, unfortunately, we'll, we'll get to them get to them next week. But thank you very much for those, and uh, and we'll read uh, some of those out. So obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and we really appreciate if you could take a couple minutes of your time to leave us a review. So joining uh, Brian and myself in the studio, we have uh, Elsa Beltran, one of our lecturers in uh, veterinary neurology and neurosurgery, who's, uh, who, who came to speak to us uh, before, but it's about a year ago, although she, she, she can't believe it's been that long because <laughs> it was so ingrained in her memory. Um, and we're going to talk about intervertebral disc herniation. So thank you, Elsa, for, for joining Brian and myself in the, My in the pleasure. studio. My pleasure. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, and so what I thought we'd uh, maybe um, uh, structure this uh, this this sort of chat about would be i suppose like the, di- the different types of um intervertebral disc herniation that we that we commonly see and and uh and I suppose mainly dogs that we're talking about um and how they present maybe a bit, a bit about how we diagnose their condition how we treat them and their their supposed sort of recovery from from these so so if i could ask you first sort of the the, the structure of an intervertebral disc how how is how is that arranged okay well in in a very kind of uh, basic anatomy when we talk about the an intervertebral disc we know mainly there are two areas one is the nucleus pulposus which is inside is a very gelatinous material and is surrounded by an annulus fibrosus and we know that anatomically the annulus fibrosus is thicker ventrally than is dorsally so obviously if something is going to come out is likely going to come out dorsally so when we talk again with the with the anatomy of the intervertebral disc one is the nucleus pulposus then you have like a transient zone between the annulus uh, and the nucleus pulposus, which is the one that, that make like the, the transfer between the cells of the nucleus pulposus to these uh, fibrocytes in the annulus uh, fibrosus, and then you have your uh, end plates, which are the one that connect to the to the vertebral body. So that's the normal anatomy. And, and talking about the the, the nucleus pulposus, as I said, is mainly formed by by uh, proteoglycans and this very hydrated type of gelatinous material. And that's the normal uh, density. That's that's the normal macroscopically aspect of the nucleus pulposus. And and then, as I said, the annulus fibrosus is is very fibrotic material, uh, which protect this annulus fibrosus and and allows this elasticity to the to the vertebral to the vertebral column and we know when we talk about the spaces of the intervertebral disc they are from c2 c3 we know that c1 c2 is a different joint doesn't have an intervertebral disc and then uh, up to the coccygeal and also have people looked at this with with age as well and does does uh, the nucleus propulsus or the, the the fibrosis ring around there change yeah with, so then is when we can talk about the degeneration so when we talk about that that doesn't mean herniation so yeah. this can be degenerated and be in place so they haven't really um, herniated so when we talk about degeneration then we need to mention uh, big Hansen which is uh, scientific who discover or describe better the type of degeneration in the intervertebral disc and he mentioned the de- degeneration with his name no he put Hansen type 1 and Hansen type 2 and when we talk about Hansen type 1 and Hansen type 2 
those means degenerations and uh, in a very brief manner uh, Hansen Taiwan is mainly a degeneration of the nucleus pulposus so the nucleus pulposus loses the consistency of this hydration so it becomes more with chondrocytes is uh, with time it more calcifies and no, we know that this type of degeneration is more typical of chondrodystrophic dogs but uh, again they can live all his life which, uh, with the degenerated Hansen Taiwa disc without causing really any problem and uh, then we have the degeneration Hansen type 2 which mainly affect to the annulus uh, fibrosus although we know as well that the nucleus pulposus is always degenerated with this type of degeneration but as I say mainly you see uh, uh, fibrotic changes in the annulus uh, fibrosus to the point that sometimes they are getting thicker and thicker and they protrude they come out of the of the of the uh, space of the intervertebral disc and then dorsally they can start compressing the spinal cord we're talking about um, having a uh, uh, above the spinal cord or they could start compressing the cauda quina if we're talking about the caudal part of the disc so we were talking about the L7-S1 or L6-L7 which um, uh, that it bring us to the first type potentially of the intervertebral disc herniation, which will be intervertebral disc protrusion. So every time that we talk about an intervertebral disc protrusion, we're talking about an intervertebral disc that has a, type, a Hansen type 2 degeneration. And we need to think about clinically how these dogs are going to present. Just thinking about this type of degeneration, that type of degeneration is not going to happen from one day to the other. That needs months to to get this protrusion slowly compressing the spinal cord so usually uh, there are dogs that present with very chronic uh, signs uh, usually they are non-lateralizing so you cannot really say all oh, right is more affecting than left they can be but usually it's not the typical presentation because he's very slowly compressing the spinal cord and the spinal cord well, well it doesn't like they are very quick changes but slow changes to the spinal cord sometimes they are non-painful so it's not uncommon to see these dogs with massive compression of the spinal cord and clinically being non-painful and sometimes because obviously you have a chronic compression to the spinal cord uh, there is a point that some dogs have can have very acute onset of deterioration and it's just because that spinal cord is so compromised that any small changes to that spinal cord acutely they can come non-ambulatory for instance or, or, or being even no having any movement at all so being plegic and that is what we say acute on chronic so they have a chronic history of being a little bit uh, paretic a little bit with proprioceptive ataxia but they can deal with that and from one day to the other tiny contusion to the core tiny vascular event to the core can really compromise that already compromised core and uh, that's that's mainly the, the clinical presentation that we have with intervertebral these protrusions is that more common in certain breeds? So potentially we see, but uh, we see it as a general term. We see more in non-chondrodystrophic dogs, and we're talking about German Shepherds, Labradors. Uh, but you can see it in 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 any dog, and usually they are as well middle aged so they are usually adult dogs. So we're talking about six, seven years onwards. Uh, so it's very uncommon to see a protrusion in very young dogs. However, if you if you think about any other a condition that could affect that stability in the in the vertebral column and we're talking about 
uh, aplegia of the articular processes or some congenital malformation with the vertebra, that is going to be a chronic instability and that potentially can cause some uh, uh, degen early degeneration of those intervertebral discs and malprotrusion. So it's, it's as I said, it's uncommon to see in young dogs, but potentially you could see it. So if it's a degeneration, do we do we know whether there is a, a genetic component or is it a lifestyle thing as well? So is it more common in either very athletic or obese animals? Or yeah, is obesity it has not been directly associated. We know that genetically uh, there's a lot of work going on on this and and. There is some genetic component on, on special breeds, for example, that the Dash Hounds, that we know they are more predisposed to uh, have uh, a Taiwan degeneration. And we can, if you want, talk about the Taiwan. Uh, so when we talk about the Taiwan degeneration, as we said before, is, is the changes in the cells of the nucleus pulposus. So uh, they become more calcified, they lose this consistency. And that obviously is, affects the, 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 the pressure inside the intervertebral disc. So then any small movement can cause a tear of the annulus and that nucleus pulposus that is already dehydrated, is recalcified, comes out of the spine. So, you, and, and then is when we talk about interretral disc herniation, but caused by extrusion. So interretral disc extrusion with degeneration Taiwan. And this, uh, again, if we talk about the clinical reasoning on how those clinical cases presented, uh, being a, uh, the, the, the signal man can already help you because as we said, this type of interretral disc are more commonly seen in chondrodystrophic dogs. However, we know that any dog can present with uh, interretral disc degeneration type 1 causing an interretral disc extrusion, but uh, they have uh, acute onset, uh, uh, progressive, they are usually painful, and uh, they may not be lateralized. So when we have those uh, clinical signs with, sorry, clinical reason with the clinical presentation with a chondrodystrophic dog, and you have a dog that presented with a myelopathy, either C1, uh, C5 myelopathy, C6, T2 myelopathy, T3, L3 myelopathy, or L4, S3 myelopathy, that present with this uh, signalman, this uh, acute onset, progressive, painful, um, uh, lateralizing or non-lateralizing, uh, for example, as I said, this type of myelopathy, interretral disextrusion, uh, Hansen Taiwan should be very high on your list. And so, how do you? So, so if you saw this um, uh, type of case and you were in practice, so not with all the bells and whistles, sort of what? How do you make your decisions about what to what to do and how to? I think treat. that's it. I think obviously we are limited sometimes in 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 the finances of the of the owner, know how much they they could afford. And and uh, if you have a a, a chondrodystrophic dog that presented with, as I said, acute onset, uh, painful, uh, lateralizing or non lateralizing, um, progressive, uh, uh, t for instance, T three L three myelopathy, and you have interventional extrusion very high on your list. Talking about things that we could do, definitely, definitely strict rest. And this is something that is, is mandatory because you know that um, the dog has already tearing that annulus for that nucleus pulposus to have come out of, of the normal uh, location and then uh, management the pain because usually it's associated with they are quite painful and when we talk about medical management of interventional these extrusions it's quite variable if you have 
uh, signs of potentially some uh, nerve involvement, if you know, is 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 lower uh, in the back, so uh, at the level of the L4 S3, you know, it's going to be some nerve root involvement. So definitely gabapentin is something that, that we choose. If you think it's about T3, L3 myelopathy, gabapentin may or may not help because we know it's more directed to nerve root uh, um pain, but uh, some of the opioids at the beginning to control the acute phase of the pain. And then uh, if there is not any contraindication, giving non-steroidals is also, is also indicated. If for whatever reason the dog cannot have non-steroidals, anti-inflammatory dose of prednisolone, for instance, is also a, a good option. But it's mandatory, the rest, because those are the dogs that you may treat the pain, they start feeling better in one or two days and they want to run move around and and the owner say why not no if it's already much better and those are the dogs that two three days they start doing much well because you control the pain and then they come back four days later being unable to even ambulate because he has jumped from the sofa for instance so if we you already have very high on your list uh, your interregional disextrusion taiwan as a differential it's very, very important that they should do at least strict rest for four to six weeks, even if the dog wants to do things. It's, it's mandatory because otherwise it's very, very, very likely if after three, four days you allow them to move, that they will go downhill again. So what's going to change your mind about when you think that they need to have surgery then for, for those Well, dogs? obviously, when we talk about intervertebral disc extrusions uh, uh, and are they surgical, yes or no, it, it depends on different conditions. One is the clinical presentation because if they are if they have a severe myelopathy, we need to know why this is severe myelopathy. And, and the decision of surgery, unfortunately, has to be done with, with other type of imaging. Uh, we know that X-rays, surface X-rays, are not enough to diagnose intervertebral disextrusion. You can see potentially some calcification into the vertebral canal, and that can potentially tell you this may be the disc, but definitely is is something that we can rely just on survey x-rays to do an invasive treatment as is the surgery. And then uh, with advanced imaging, either an MRI or a CT or a CT myelogram can potentially help to to make a decision. And, and the decision, as I said, it, it has to be not just based on MRI. We, we, we don't make decisions just based on MRI. You need to do the decisions with the clinical presentations and the, and the, and the advanced imaging. No? So if the spinal cord is severely compressed and the dog has severe uh, myelopathy, then that's a decision that is clear, that the spinal cord has to be decompressed. But if the spinal cord has a minimal compression, even if the dog has a severe myelopathy, then it's likely that 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 clinical science is caused more by a contusion to the core than rather the compression. So surgery is not really going to change the outcome. And so have people looked into that with, uh, with, with, I suppose, like type 1 disc or degenerative disc in general to say whether you know, surgery is appropriate or medical therapy? Or do some yeah. people want surgery because they think it's a quicker fix? It may be a quicker fix. And sometimes it's, it's that. Sometimes you get the, the owners that say, oh, I want to do surgery because I don't want to rest the dog. And, and that's definitely not a, a, a way to go because even if you do surgery, the four to six weeks of rest, that is mandatory for either treatment because uh, obviously you do the surgery and you can decompress, but uh, we do associated fenestration to that disc. So try to remove what is left inside of the nucleus pulposus, but it's never 100% uh, we're going to empty the heart. So, and you definitely cannot treat the tear of the annulus while you are there in surgery. So those dogs has to rest anyway when we do this type of surgeries. And, and uh, if there is not 
a massive compression, those dogs can do extremely well without surgery. And, and it's definitely seen on the on the studies that if you have minimal compression and you do a rest, those dogs, they don't have to go into 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 advanced or, or more invasive treatment as, as could be a spinal surgery. So roughly with the with the surgery, Elsa, what, what are you actually trying to trying to do? So the aim of the surgery, and that's the only aim of the surgery with the interventional disc extra- extrusion, is to decompress, is to remove. And then you need to, to think what is compressing the spinal cord, because sometimes we have severe hemorrhage. Sometimes we have a, a mix of hemorrhage with this calcified material. Sometimes we have dogs that they decided to treat um, uh, conservatively, so just medically, and they don't do well, and they relapsed two months later and what you see is a very fibrotic tissue even attached to the core because it's it's, it's kind of uh, um, the body detected as an abnormal uh, tissue and react to it no so you apart from this calcified material you see a lot of adhesions and obviously that has a a, a major risk of deterioration after the surgery because you kind of manipulate uh, the core but the aim of the surgery is literally decompress so going to surgery is you need to make sure that there is a compression because otherwise there is no point to go for for surgery. And this is what can bring to the other type of disc uh, herniation because up to now we have talking about we've just been talking about the type one and type two and and uh, with the new or, or techniques that we had for the diagnosis of of the myelopathies we have realized that we we see all the type of intervertebral disc and that brings us to the uh, uh, non-degenerated discs. So we know that that even with healthy discs, they can also herniate. And uh, uh, one of the, the ones that we see more commonly is the acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion. And it may look like a very long name, but if we think about why it's called like that, it makes perfect sense. So this type of interventional disc herniation is also known as traumatic disc because usually uh, signalman is extremely important because usually they happen in very active dogs. They usually run uh, and chase the ball and make this twist movement uh, in the air. And and just looking at this, you can potentially think which is the, the breed that is more represented with this disc and is the Border Collie. So we see it a lot in Border Collies because if you see them playing in the garden or playing in the in the fields, they, how they move is just crazy. So those type of disc, also known as traumatic disc, is that the nucleus pulposus is non digital generated so it means it, it remains this hydrated status and because they do this traumatic event there is a tear of the annulus and usually happen in adult dogs which is thin, which is thought that the, the the annulus gets thinner with with the age and that that movement with the, that twisted movement uh, makes a tear of the annulus so a very hydrated material comes out of the of the uh, nucleus pulposus and uh, goes into the uh, vertebral canal, hit the spinal cord. So you definitely get a contusion to the spinal cord. But this hydrating material uh, moves around the spinal cord, so it's not really compressive. So you think about the name, it's acute because this definitely doesn't happen with chronic onset. It has to be acute or peracute. It's non-compressive is the nucleus pulposus that has extruded. And uh, because this is something that has been 
discovered, put it that, that way, since we have access to MRI, there are different names that have been given to the same conditions. And one of the other names, as I said, is traumatic disc. Some people also call it high velocity, low volume. But if you're very picky with the name, you can definitely say it's low volume, but you cannot say it's high velocity because you cannot measure the velocity. So that's what is a little bit tricky with that name. Even some people also call it type 3, but if we want to be picky, uh, Hansen described Taiwan on type 2 degeneration. So we know this type of intervertebral disc is non-degenerated. Therefore, it could not be called Hansen, and Hansen is dead. So obviously, it could not have described the type 3. So this is probably the two reasons why it should not really be called type 3, and ideally, it should not really call high-velocity low-volume because of the fact that we cannot... Where did that high velocity come, uh, term come from? Is that is that extrapolated from people or? I know. I think it was just the way because because I think you see just a contusion to the core that uh, when we start seeing those those type of discs, we just automatically the world has come out so fast to be able to cause that contusion because when again if we look at the clinical reasoning and with intervertebral disc and myelopathies, clinical reasoning is very important because this type of of clinical um, presentation is very typical. You have a very active dog, uh, usually adult, six, seven, eight years, uh, that uh, present with peracute after playing or doing something rough. Uh, sometimes they just yelp at the time of the onset. Uh, they usually are non-painful, but the first 24 hours, or if you press, they may react to it, but it's a pain that doesn't sustain and it doesn't get worse. Uh, they are non-progressive. They can be progressive the first 24 hours, but definitely after that time, they are non-progressive. And they are usually lateralized. So up to 90% of the cases, you have a lateralization, which means uh, you have a dog that may be even monoplegic on the right and totally normal on the left. And there are very particular myelopathies that can do that. You will not have a compression to the spinal cord that gives you normal movement on one leg, like totally normal movement, and absent movement on the other one. Because when you compress the core, you compress the core. It's not like, I'm going to compress just half of the core. Mm. So that tells you that this light is going to be a contusion to the core with minimal compression. So uh, it's important that we see the signal, man, on, on those cases. Because the treatment, as I said, even if we do advanced imaging, and we get to the diagnosis of being an acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion, that abbreviation is known as ANNPE, um, uh, we know that those patients are treated with rest and a lot of physiotherapy. And what is the outcome depends, because again, if that dog's present with paraplegia, with absent nociception, the it means that you have a severe damage to the spinal cord, so it may it has a guarded prognosis that a dog that presented with just a monoplegia with good nociception, those dogs are very likely going to recover. And it may take two, three, four, five days, even a little bit longer, but it's very likely that if you have good nociception and the movement recover, it's very likely that dog is going to have a, a good outcome. Uh, as a long term, sometimes we see some fecal and urinary incontinent, like a few months, year later, but it's not very common to see it anyway. Could, could that be confused with uh, anything else, also, that sort of presence? Yeah, this type of presentation, even if it happened with being active, we cannot rule out because typically the presentation is very similar. If you have what is known as ischemic uh, myelopathy, and the most common ischemic myelopathy that we recognize in dogs is FCE, which stands for fibrocartilaginous embolism, but we know that this is a histopathological diagnosis, so we cannot really diagnose FCE. We diagnose 
ischemic myelopathy potentially and even ischemic myelopathy we just make presumed on the images that we could do but as I said the presentation is very similar you have a very peracute onset is usually non-painful and if it's painful it's just not very markedly painful and it's just for a few hours and usually it doesn't get worse uh, is um, is lateralized and uh, is non-progressive. As I said, it can be progressive the first 24 hours, but it is, is non-progressive. And that is what is uh, diagnosed as an ischemic myelopathy, obviously. And that uh, comes for any type of contusion to the spinal cord caused by either a interventional disc herniation Hansen Taiwan or, or a contusion to the core, even a severe ischemic. That can cause also severe necrosis to the spinal cord. Any type of contusion to the core can cause necrosis. And that probably is the... the saddest part of this type of myelopathy is because when we have severe necrosis to the spinal cord, that is totally irreversible, that is not going to get better. And that's the best scenario that it doesn't get worse. And if that progress is known as ascending and descending melomalacia, which is a kind of a biomechanical um, that you have into the spinal cord, with that necrosis goes higher and goes caudal. And obviously, you have a L2, L3 or uh, L3, L4 and start going uh, cranially, then your respiratory um, system is going to get affected. Your thorax is not going to be able to, to, to breathe properly. And those are the dogs that unfortunately has to be euthanized because one is extremely painful. They will not breathe properly and they are going to die because they are not going to be able to oxygenate themselves. So it's, it's a very sad condition. But uh, again, that those on presentation, they are paraplegic, they have absent nociception, and they will, uh, as I said, get worse with time. So is it important to try and differentiate between ANAPE and, and uh, uh, a fibrocartilage embolism? Clinically, as I said, the, the presentation may be pretty similar. The treatment may be pretty similar too. The only thing is that uh, if you have a, an ischemic myelopathy uh, or on FCE, um, the more physio they do, the better, no? The more movement around and, and, and so on, obviously, all control. However, you have a, an ANNPE, the acute compressive nucleus proposal extrusion, uh, you know there's a tear of the annulus, and that needs about four, six weeks to heal properly, theoretically. So you want those dogs to have a rest. I mean, they don't need to be confined in a cage, but they are dogs that they should not be allowed to jump on and off things. They should not be allowed to go up and down stairs. Well, if you have a ischemic myelopathy and the dog is able to jump, coordinate it, and it's not going to, you know, fall, it's something that they potentially could do because obviously you would a lot of physio and movement and plasticity to that spinal cord to, to start to... to uh, recover the function. So is there any advanced imaging that you can use to differentiate the, these two? Yes, uh, there, are, there are different studies now where, where we can see some particularities with the with the MRI. You cannot really differentiate it much based on, on CT or, or myelogram, but CT or myelogram will be good to differentiate something compressive versus non-compressive, while MRI give you more detail about the, the, the soft tissue, so allow us to see how is the nucleus pulposus, and you see that when you have uh, an 
PE, you have um, a decreased volume of the nucleus pulposus, that volume has gone into the vertebral canal, you see the contusion to the spinal cord, while if you have an ischemic myelopathy, you don't see any material into the vertebral canal, and that's the main difference between, and also if, if depending on the severity of the contusion, you see, uh, talking about the hyperintensity on MRI, if it's very hyperintense and it's very long, the hyperintensity compared with for example, L2 vertebral bodies, that can give you as well a pronostic factor. But obviously the, the most important pronostic factor will be how the dog is clinically. If the dog has a good nociception, then doesn't matter how much is the hyperintensity in the spinal cord. But uh, you need to make sure the dog keeps that nociception, for instance. Right. And uh, and when when the when the mics were closed, we we said there's a, a another form of that's uh, it. So 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 far we have said three. There is another form which is pretty similar to the acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusion, but this one is compressive. So it's a non-degenerative disc is very hydrated and it compresses the core. So it's known as hydrated nucleus pulposus extrusion because when the nucleus pulposus comes out, it's already extruded, but the differentiated with Hansen type 2 is that this one remains hydrated, but it's massively compressive sometimes, and it's but it's a lot of hydrated material. So the presentation clinically is the same. It's peracute because suddenly everything comes out. It's uh, usually non-painful. The characteristic of this one is we don't see massive lateralization So and usually has a tendency to happen in the cervical spine. Usually it's non-painful and, and it's non-painful because it's a very hydrated material, so it's not very calcified. So touching the meninges potentially is something very soft that is kind of extruded. And... Um, they usually present quite severely. They usually are tetraplegic or non-ambulatory tetraparetic. And when we talk about the, the treatment of these dogs, uh, depending how is the presentation, if they are severely like tetraplegic and uh, it's a massive compression, then obviously surgery we think is indicated. However, and we may be talking about different treatment in, few, in a year or two years or five years time now because now we see more and more that in those cases if we wait that material kind of reabsorbs or dissolves because it's very very hydrated so this dog get better just with uh, conservative management but again if you have a massive compression on a dog that that is tetraplegic and we know when dogs are tetraplegic they may have the 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 phrenic nerve compromise and they may have some respiratory issues so obviously you want to decompress that spinal cord as soon as possible but we have to remember as well that the myelopathy may not be caused just by the compression also by the contusion so you may decompress but the dog still have clinical signs because of the severe contusion to the core so again at the moment we think that if it's severe compression surgery is indicated but as i said uh, more and more clinically we see that uh, many dogs that we wait and see they also get better they may need longer time of recovery but they also get better and so with that severe compression as you said before you're you're assessing the patients them themselves so is it to do to do with the fact of whether they have a normal responses to nociception or deep pain or or how long do you do you wait until those those uh... to decide if it goes for surgery or not yeah. so usually we wait like one or two days because uh, if we wait like 24 48 hours and it's a little bit of improvement it's already saying that it's likely is going to get better if there is not improvement at all in 48 hours we potentially decide to go for surgery obviously as i said the more critical ones are the tetraplegic because you will never get a tetraplegic dog 
with absent nociception with a, a C1, C5 malopathy because they die before, because they cannot breathe. So if if uh, if they keep the good nociception and they have a good breathing and you can wait 48 hours, if there is no change after 48 hours, you can discard with the owner, look, it's very, it's very likely that it's going to get better if we wait but it may take 10 days of hospitalization versus two, three days of hospitalization if we do surgery. But obviously surgery has money costs and complications, which, you know, uh, the, the owner on those point has to take the decision, shall we wait? Because as a long, it's very, very likely that those dogs are going to recover either doing nothing or nothing like conservative management or, or bring into surgery. However, as I said, if you have a respiratory system that is compromised because of a severe myelopathy, those are the cases that we decide to go for surgery sooner. And also with, with the degenerative conditions of the type 1 and type 2 discs, what, what is their prognosis as in if they, if they do require... Uh, surgeries, or, or even actually with medical management, how, how do they again? I think the, the 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 neurological assessment is the most important. If they have good nociception, uh, it's very likely that that they are going to recover the motor function. If they have absent nociception, even if they want to do surgery, and absent nociception has been for for more than twenty four hours, for instance, uh, the recovery of the nociception is questionable and usually we say to the owner like okay we go for surgery and prior to taking any drastic decision we wait two three weeks and see if he recovers because the first thing the dog is going to recover is the nociception and then it's going to start walking so uh, if nociception is present then it's very very likely that dog is going to recover and we're talking about 80 percent 90 percent of dogs is likely is going to recover if the nociception is absent we're talking probably 50%, sometimes even less. And you have the dogs that were walking in the morning and in the evening they have absent nociception. Those dogs are definitely less than 50% are going to recover. And it's something that the owners should mentally be prepared because they spend the money of the surgery, the post-operative care, and we control the pain and that dog is going to be very likely free of pain, but it's unlikely it's going to recover the motor function. It's just not the motor function with the legs. It's also the bladder management and, and the, the, the fecal continence that is going to be compromised. And so the, the the change that you've seen, I'm not, not going to at, at all say that you, uh, you've you um, been doing this for a long time because that would assume that you're you're, uh, you're you're getting older like the rest of us. I'm <laughs> but, not getting older. <laughs> but um, but what what is what is sort of change in, in like the, the diagnosis and management? And, and I, I suppose in more thinking about um, uh, like like a radiography and myelograms compared to you know, MRI now and then also. Do you, do you think we've made a lot of advances in the post-operative care as well? Do you like the, with the physiotherapy and yeah, uh, definitely. I swimming. think understanding knowing that we know it's just not an intervertebral disc herniation. We need to know which type of intervertebral disc herniation and, and understanding the the different types and how they. Uh, uh, compromise the spinal cord, compressive versus non-compressive. It makes a big difference, and it's true that that uh, we like seeing the soft tissue. We love to see the MRI because MRI really gives us a detail on how the spinal cord uh, uh, is compromised with the contusion or is compromised with the compression, and uh, that tell us as well, you know, how, what, what is likely is going to be the prognosis if we go for surgery, we don't go for surgery and, and the postoperative care, if you have a, 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 a ischemic myelopathy uh, and you are able to make a presumptive diagnosis based on, on MRI, you know that the physiotherapy that, and nowadays in the meaning, our physiotherapists are 
great in any in any sense and and the fact that you can put the dog in the water treadmill the fact that you can put the dog into the into a pool and and make a very intensive physiotherapy with, without having to support all the weight and it, it's just it's just unbelievable how how the recovery of these dogs before they were recovering and and remaining some fibrosis tissue the muscles didn't get all the the functionality back because they got fibrotic because of the bad physiotherapy but nowadays that that they can and and it's a, an amazing treatment the physiotherapy that we sh- shouldn't underestimate yeah and do, and, do you, and where do you see things sort of changing in in the future because you, you were saying about the uh NAPEs, maybe we'll have a better idea about how to how to treat some. Well, overall, the, the, yeah, I think I think again in in the in the, the future management of the of the disc, uh, it may be the type of surgery. Hopefully, we'll we try now and more being less invasive and trying to me- make more microsurgeries with smaller holes to to potentially that will affect less the stability. Uh, and and as now that we have advanced imaging, that we can exactly see where the compression is we can focus our uh, emilaminectomy or hold to the spine directed to that so i guess making smaller surgeries will be something that we we would like to aim in the in the in the future and and uh, understanding more because as i said there are many of these interretrial discs that are very new and new we're talking about six seven eight years that we know about them and and obviously that that we need time to know which are the best treatment and, and at the moment as i said the hydrogenoclus pulposo extrusion if it's massively compressing we go for surgery but the question is are really all of them needed surgery is something that we may or may not be able to answer in a few years time and I imagine some of those are probably going to be decided in studies that maybe owners can't go forward with a treatment definitely. so you're going to have a, yeah. a control group but are there are there people looking at at that, yeah, we're definitely looking at them because, uh, again, more and more we are aiming to wait and see on those dogs where, you know, three, four years' time. And, and I'm the one that wrote the paper in 2014, and I really, and, and one of my conclusions was that the dog had to be gone for surgery when the compression was uh, severe. And now I'm, I'm saying that it may not be the case, and that is four years later after that paper. So, uh, again, I think uh, hopefully the problem of those cases is is of those studies are the cases because as you said we don't want to be biased on the selection and and making this type of retrospective studies is a little bit complicated and make them prospective i mean if you cannot put the dog in a uh, medical management when the owners don't want to accept the risk of medical management so it's a little bit tricky and obviously comparing those with humans where you have 300 400 500 cases with you know conclusions on 30 or 20 cases is not like We'll get there, though. We'll get I like there. I like the idea that you disagree with what you published yeah, before. Yeah. Do, your, do your residents sometimes say we should do this because this is published? And yeah, you're like, that, that was me. That's <laughs> it. That's, that's that's probably something that I. But again, at that point, it was the first time this hydrogenoclus proposal exclusion was described, and and that was our experience for one or two years seeing them. And now it's nearly six years since we started seeing them, and and that's totally normal that you may. Uh, you know, realize that not all of them need surgery, even if the compression is severe. It's glad to, glad to know that we're, uh, we're we're making advances, or at least in the in the right direction yeah. about these things. Do do you think there's uh, anything we've uh, we've missed sort of covering? No. Well, if you talk about the acute non-compressive nucleus pulposo mm-hmm. extrusion, there's another type, like going into the inside the spinal cord, and that's all, all that is called as an intramedullary disc extrusion, which again is a type of traumatic disc extrusion, and with uh, we, we, we thought they they have a severe clinical presentation, but we just came to, with a study comparing 
during the acute non-compressive nucleus pulposo extrusion with the intramedullary disc extrusions, and we see that they are pretty much the same clinical presentation, so it doesn't mean they have a pure prognosis, even if you have an intramedullary disc extrusion. That's good. Well, thank you very much for You're your welcome. time today, Elsa, and uh, um, and I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. So thank thank you for, for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you leave us a, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Acast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any others, and we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, then please get in touch. You can either email Email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye.